0: Welcome back to the program. For the 10 million or so people that saw Fifty Shades of Grey this past weekend, or the many more millions who read the books, in a way what you were doing was trying to understand touch, the complex way in which our bodies and our brains process pleasure and pain, why childhood development is crucial to that process, and ways in which touch shapes our sexuality, our cooperation, our well-being, and our own internal interaction between the physical and emotional world. This is the world that our guest David Linden writes about in his new book, Touch. David Linden is a professor in the Solomon H. Snyder Department of Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He served for many years the chief editor of the Journal of Neurophysiology. His previous best-selling book was The Compass of Pleasure, and it is truly my pleasure to welcome David Linden back to this program to talk about his new book, Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. David, thanks so much for joining
1: us thanks for having me on again.
0: Great to have you here. One of the things that that you talk about is this sense of touch is less optional in some respects than some of our other senses, that we can be born blind and live a perfectly normal life or be born deaf, but not having a sense of touch is very different.
1: That's right, And, and when I say not having a sense of touch in this context, it doesn't Mean being born without the ability to to uh, receive touch information. Rather, it means you're born with a normal touch system. But uh, if, a, as occurred in Romanian orphanages in right. the 1980s and 90s, you don't receive uh, uh, interpersonal touch in early life, then it turns out that there's a, a whole disaster that unfolds. So these these uh, these uh, infants and toddlers develop. Con- uh, uh self-soothing uh, motions, uh, c- uh, convulsive, uh, repetitive rocking. they uh, have attachment disorders, their their cognitive development is delayed. And the problems are not just uh, with their with their mental lives. The problems are also with the development of their bodies. so uh, they they grow more slowly and their immune systems are compromised and their digestive system doesn't develop properly and uh... the good news is that a very small amount of touch early in life will reverse these deleterious effects So if you can get into the orphanage while the child is small and give it a half hour a day of loving touch that's enough to undo the damage uh... the bad news is that if you don't get there until after the kids about two basically the damage has been done and And uh, the kids from these orphanages who didn't get loving touch uh, before age two uh, have this this host of problems that that persist their entire lives.
0: And when we look at these problems, what does it tell us about this connection between physiological development and our sense of touch and the way it is processed in the brain?
1: Well, what it tells us is that uh, we've had a very long human evolutionary history, and for most of that history, uh, we know that humans have been living in social groups, and so we're very attuned to all kinds of social cues, whether it's facial expressions or tone of voice or uh, decoding interpersonal touch, and uh, that touch is, is absolutely essential, not just in uh, early life for proper development, but uh, as, we, as we grow up, it's social touch is is the glue, the social glue that binds uh, sexual partners into lasting couples, uh, it binds people in the family, and and in the workplace and in the community, appropriate social touch is uh, what fosters uh, emotions of trust and cooperation. So we don't really entirely understand the biology of why it is that you need interpersonal touch in order to develop properly as a youngster. What we do know is that it's, it's incontrovertible that you need it, and that it continues to have a role into adulthood.
0: It does seem to sit on a rather delicate fulcrum in some ways, because while touch is the way we might think about it feels good most of the time. Too much touch, too little touch, too light a touch, touch in the wrong direction, all can have deleterious consequences, that there's a, a sweet spot to touch.
1: Right, there's a there's a sweet spot in, in, in many uh, ways of thinking about it in terms of the parameters of a caress, but I think even more importantly, having to do with context, I think all of us can imagine that, you know, we don't want to be always touched by all people all the time. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of situations where where it's not really a good idea, and so I I, I think it's good to think about this as a, an example. Uh, imagine your sweetheart giving you a nice caress on the arm in a very quiet, connected, loving time. And then imagine that exact same caress with the exact same pressure on your skin, all the same physical parameters, but delivered in the middle of an argument. It's not just that they feel the same, but then upon reflection, uh, you think about them differently. They actually feel different. And this is because the higher parts of the brain that, that compute uh, social context areas like the parietotemporal temporal junction and the orbitofrontal cortex with these anatomical names, um, they they send messages to the part of your brain that's involved in processing the emotional and the factual aspects of touch, and they modify their activity. Um, The same way uh, uh, an arm around your shoulder from a domineering boss feels different than an arm around your shoulder from your best buddy feels different than an arm around your shoulder for someone hitting on you at a bar. Uh, context is, is key.
0: Beyond that, though, it depends on where we're touched, because we can be sensitive, but a touch on one part of our body might give us a different reaction than a touch on a different part of our body or a different place.
1: Well, that's, that's absolutely true, and I think one of the most interesting discoveries in recent years in, in touch research is that we have a dedicated system for detecting interpersonal touch, so-called caress detectors. But these are only present in hairy skin. They're not, they're not present in the hairless or glabrous skin that we find on uh, the soles of our feet or the palms of our hands or, or our lips or a few other places. They're, they're found in the hairy skin. And if you look uh, under a microscope at the skin, you can see that these what are called C-tactile fibers, uh, they're nerve endings that wrap around the base of hair follicles, and they detect hair deflection. And they are tuned for precisely those kinds of touches that we find most pleasant. So just imagine that you're receiving a caress, and it's crawling along very, very slowly. Well, it doesn't feel pleasant. And then imagine someone skims your arm very, very quickly, with their caress. well, that doesn't feel pleasant either. We're actually tuned to have a loving feeling from caresses that move at about two inches per second, uh, plus or minus a little bit. Likewise, with pressure, a real hard caress doesn't feel loving. A real light, itchy, tickly caress doesn't feel loving. There's an intermediate level of pressure that uh, that does. Uh, but these caress detectors aren't found everywhere on the body.
0: And the processing of this, is this something that is physiological, or is this something that takes place strictly in the brain? And what do we understand about that?
1: Well, the the, the interesting thing is that the tuning for the optimal caress doesn't take place in the brain at all. And, and to me, this is actually kind of a shocking and surprising discovery. Uh, if you make recordings of the electrical activity of these C-tactile nerve fibers, uh, as they run through your arm before these signals ever get to the brain they already respond most readily to precisely those caress parameters that we find to be most pleasant so the tuning isn't in the brain the tuning is in the skin That said, um, if you look in the skin we have all kinds of of different sensors for touch there's one for hot one for cold one for pain one for itch uh... one for vibration one for texture and and many more And these flow to the brain, but when they get to the brain, they segregate into two major systems. One of them is the discriminative touch system, and that's there to determine the facts about touch. Where on my body am I being touched? What is the nature of that touch? How intense is it? And then there's a separate emotional touch system in a different region called the uh, posterior insula. And this region is what gives a caress its positive emotional feeling, and what helps to give an orgasm its positive emotional feeling, and what gives pain its emotionally negative feeling. And we think about these sensations about having intrinsic emotional states associated with them. For example, we think of pain as being intrinsically emotionally negative, but if you sustain damage to your emotional touch system, when you uh, when you experience pain, you still know what it is and where it's happening, and what its qualities are, but it has no emotional resonance for you whatsoever. So if you have damage to that system, I hit you on the thumb with a hammer, instead of going, oh, oh that's terrible, that hurts, you would say, yes, it hurts. Um, it hurts a lot. It's on my thumb in a very flat, emotionless voice.
0: And how do these two systems link together, particularly as it relates to pain?
1: Because their activity is simultaneous, we experience pain and and all other touch sensations as a gestalt. uh, It's only when there's damage to the brain that you realize that these are separate things uh, that are processed differently. So the same way you can get this phenomenon called pain asymbolia, where pain has no emotional resonance. And I should point out, this isn't like masochism. People who are masochists, their pain has a lot of emotional resonance for them. It's just positive rather than negative. In pain, asymbolia, people are, are indifferent to it. But the same thing happens in other sensations. So, for example, uh, if you have sexual stimulation, but the pleasure centers in your brain are damaged and the emotional uh, touch centers are damaged, you will have an orgasm that feels more like a sneeze than like what one would normally experience. In other words, it's, it's convulsive, but but not compelling. Uh, We are used to thinking about orgasms as being positive and pain as being negative as as an intrinsic property, but this is a trick our brain plays on us.
0: And what about the positive resonance of pain? How does that play out and how does that relate to what you're talking about now?
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, of course very relevant to uh, Fifty Shades and, and, and all kinds of things going on uh, uh, in the popular consciousness right now. So we have a pleasure circuit in our brain. Uh, It's located in a brain region called the ventral tegmental area and it involves neurons that release the neurotransmitter dopamine. And this is the core of our pleasure circuit. It's activated by eating food when you're hungry, it's activated by an orgasm, it's activated by smoking cannabis or drinking alcohol, a lot of these things that we think of as being pleasurable. But what's remarkable is that there are dopamine neurons in the ventral tegmental area that are also activated by, uh, say, a foot shock delivered to a rat or by an injection that produces an aching sensation in the jaw of of human uh, test subjects. And you might think, well, but why should this be? If this is the pleasure circuit, why should pain activate some of these neurons? And I think the thing to realize is that pleasure and pain are not opposites. The opposite of pleasure is not pain. It's ennui. It's boredom. It's being uninterested in sensation. The same way that love and hate aren't opposites. Uh, the opposite of love is indifference, not hate. Uh, and so in this sense, uh What pain and pleasure share is what cognitive psychologists call salience, meaning things that are important for your future experience, things that you need to attend to, things that you need to remember. And so the indication is that we are hardwired to find some painful experiences rewarding, particularly if those painful experiences... Can if we can learn that those painful experiences um, don't ultimately threaten our, 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 our lives or our bodies in any significant way. And I think this is what you see both in BDSM sexual practice, but also what you see in people who like to eat spicy Thai food, for example. Mm-hmm. That's a painful experience that people come to enjoy as well.
0: And is that the same for physical pain as well as emotional pain? If we witness something that has a strong emotional, painful emotional component, is the same system operative as when it's physical pain?
1: Um, it overlaps. So uh, you know people always say, "Oh, I'm experiencing emotional pain. i have I have heartbreak, you hurt my feelings." And it's easy to think, well, this is just metaphoric language. This is like someone saying he's got a face like an unmade bed. You know, it doesn't have any real. It's just something that that you make up linguistically. It, it doesn't have any real biological basis. But if you do experiments and you put people in a brain scanning machine and you have them experience social exclusion, either. Uh, For example, in a video game where the characters won't interact with you and only play with each other, or in some cases they actually had people read you've just been dumped letters from their sweetheart while they're in a brain scanning machine, a rather intense Mm -hmm. social rejection. And what you find is that this activates the same emotional pain circuit that's activated by physical pain. And so the pattern of brain activation when you hit your thumb with a hammer and the pattern of brain activation when you get dumped by your sweetheart aren't identical, but they overlap significantly in these emotional pain areas uh, that are called the posterior insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. And in that sense, that is the basis for that metaphor.
0: how does this relate to the notion that we all seem to have different thresholds for pain something that that might hurt you may not bother me or when you go to the doctor and they ask how something hurts on a scale of 1 to 10 frequently people's response to the same kind of pain is is different talk about that
1: so that's that's a really great question we actually very we know very little about variation in pain threshold between individuals um other than uh, people who are suffering from depression tend to have much lower pain thresholds. Um, It's not as if there are very rare people who have a genetic syndrome where they can't feel any pain at all, but that is extraordinarily rare. Uh, In terms of day-to-day variation, it's not just that there's variation between individuals, but that the same individual in different circumstances – will feel pain, experience pain very differently. And the, the example that I use in my book is uh, uh, from a soldier in, in combat. So Private Dwayne Turner uh, was in Iraq. He is a combat medic. He is with a group of, of soldiers, and uh, they came under attack, and he was hit with fragments from a grenade, and he was running out to bring his comrades to safety, and he was shot twice he didn't even notice that he had been hit by the fragments. He didn't even notice that he had been shot. And one of the other soldiers said, hey, you've been hit. And he said, no, that's not that's not me. That's just blood from some other guy that got on me. He didn't even feel the pain at all. And um, it doesn't diminish his heroism. He saved 12 people's lives. He was awarded the Silver Star for valor. It doesn't diminish his heroism at all to know that this is not unusual in any way. And Private Turner's in the field hospital a couple of days later, and he undergoes a blood draw that's done clumsily and hurts a little bit. he complains about it in that situation just like anyone else would. So it's not as if he is someone who has an unusual pain tolerance. It's not that its soldiers are, are, are superhumans. It's that when they are thrust into a particular situation, the emotional and attentional state... Uh, changes the pain perception to dampen it tremendously. Whereas a few days later in the field hospital, he's back to being like anyone anyone else.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a scene, actually, it's in All the President's Men, where the character that's playing G. Gordon Liddy puts out a flame with his hand, and, and the person across the table from him says, well, what's the trick? How do you do that? And he says, the trick is not caring.
1: Right, and we can modify our pain perception, particularly for chronic pain, through a number of practices. So... Um, the problem with chronic pain is that there's a terrible positive feedback loop between anxiety and chronic pain. When you have chronic pain, you worry, when is it going to come back? Or if you're having it, when is it going to end? And that anxiety actually makes the pain p- feel worse, which makes the anxiety worse, and, and it's, it's terrible. So if you can break that, uh, that loop, uh, it's a good thing. Well, one way to do it is with anti-anxiety drugs, But a more benign way to do it is uh, through meditative practice, which can also serve to reduce anxiety and has now been shown in some pretty good studies to uh, help attenuate chronic pain as well.
0: Does this also give us a key to the way these anti-anxiety drugs and, and even narcotics sometimes work, that they work differently in somebody that is using them to remediate pain specifically as opposed to somebody that's taking them recreationally?
1: Yeah, it turns out that most, you're absolutely right, most people who take morphine for pain relief don't feel euphoria, whereas most people who take morphine recreationally do feel euphoria. So uh, the effect of a drug is, is, is an interaction with your own mental state.
0: What do we still not understand between the emotional connection between pleasure and pain, the way in which... Emotional pain sometimes plays out
1: well uh, I would say there' are some very interesting findings along these uh, uh, there are interesting findings along these lines uh, that I'm waiting to see if they can be replicated and followed up. One of the things that I read that was the most interesting to me was a study that claimed that uh, emotional pain can be dampened but just by taking over the Counter analgesics like uh, ibuprofen or or, uh, or Tylenol. Um, uh, I th- I think that's remarkable if it's true.
0: And what does that tell us about how these systems work? And the idea that these are anti-inflammatories, basically.
1: Well, what it tells us is that there is. Uh, a distinct link between emotional pain and physical pain and, and in a way that shouldn't surprise us, because evolutionarily speaking, if evolution ever has a chance to use something for two different functions, it will do that rather than create something utterly new. Uh, evolution is a tinkerer, not an engineer, is a famous expression by uh, the biologist Francois Jacob. And uh, so it's, it's not that, it shouldn't be that surprising in that evolutionary context that, that emotional pain and physical pain overlap to a great degree. But the details of exactly how that happens uh, are hard to come by because, you know, emotional pain is something that you've... Uh, You've really got to study in humans, and in humans, you're very limited as to what you can measure in the brain. You have to use brain scanning machines, and brain scanning machines are very crude. They're slow. They have poor spatial resolution. Uh, with a rat, you, you can do things like, like record activity from individual neurons with an electrode, but you can't ask them about their emotional lives.
0: What about aging in this process? One of the things you touch on is that our sense of touch gets worse as we get older. How does that relate to some of the other things that we have been talking about and how they play out as we age?
1: Well, yeah, the bad news is that you have the most number of touch nerve endings when you're 20, and then we lose about 1% of them every year thereafter. And It happens so gradually that you don't notice it when you're young. And you don't notice it when you're middle-aged. But by the time you're old, uh, it's, it's an issue. And you, you lose all the different kinds of touch endings. You lose sexual sensation, but you also lose pain. You lose temperature sensation, but also light touch and vibration. And uh, this is manifest in a number of ways. So, for example, old folks who are in institutional settings often get bed sores. And the bed sores, you would think, would be horrifically painful and would be reported right away before they get bad. But because... Uh, they've lost so much of that pain sensation. That's that's part of the reason why you have to be really attentive when you're a caregiver in that situation. Another situation where this comes up has to do with falls. So there's a lot of reasons why elderly folks are are, are subject to to terrible falls, uh, having to do with balance and muscle weakness. But one of the reasons is that the touch sensors in the soles of your feet are diminished and as a consequence it's harder to feel the ground under your feet and uh, as a consequence it's harder to adjust your stance properly uh in a way that would keep you most stable i think perhaps most important uh in aging is the fact that a lot of elderly folks don't get a lot of interpersonal touch you know maybe their partner is gone uh their 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 family isn't around very much if you're in an institutional setting you may not really get very much loving touch. And in this context, it's really been shown that a number of things are very valuable. Uh, Massage therapy is really good in these situations for alleviating uh, uh, depression and anxiety and social phobias and uh, uh, reducing problems in in people suffering from dementia. Uh, uh, Companion animals are great. And, And when you can't have a companion animal, it's often you can't in an institutional setting, even uh, uh, little touch robots are are pretty good. So there's this, you may have seen in the media, this Japanese uh, baby harp seal robot named Paro. And uh, the initial indications from uh, uh, institutional settings for the elderly is that uh, that petting petting this little animatronic seal uh, can really help people out.
0: We've talked a a bit about this in in the context of evolutionary biology. Where do genetics fit into this equation with respect to touch and our relationship to pleasure and pain?
1: Well, so that's a great question. So there are very rare genetic disorders where you either lose all pain pain sensation uh, called chronic total insensitivity to pain syndrome, And this is a disaster because you can't feel the pain that you need for protective reflexes. And so these people usually have a hard time living past about age 20 or 25. Uh, And there is also a very rare syndrome called primary sensory neuronopathy, where you're touch blind and you you cannot feel mechanical touches uh, anywhere on your body. Uh, What we don't know about is more subtle variation. So, for example, you may have heard that there is an explanation for why some people like cilantro and other people dislike it. And it has to do with genetic variation in one of the 400 or so odorant receptors that we have in the human nose. And if you have one variant, you're going to be a cilantro liker. And if you're going to have another variant, you'll be a cilantro hater. It's very likely that there are subtle variations in the genes that are responsible for touch sensation, both in the peripheral nerves and perhaps in the brain. Uh, but right now, we don't have the information to correlate that genetic variation with people's subtle differences in touch sensation. Of course, you know some people like a lot of light touch. Some people don't like it at all. Some people like their hugs really strong, and some people like them really light. And there are cultural factors here, but there are very likely also genetic subtle genetic variation as well that we don't yet understand.
0: David Linden, the book is Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thanks for having me on. It was fun.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.